1: Hello, this is the Red box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and some of you can go straight to the top of the class after I asked you to go online and post some reviews on the Apple Podcast thingy so we can do better in the charts. Uh, loads of you have. Uh, Paul says uh, it, it's an excellent podcast that deserves five stars. Uh, Willie says, I'm a 52-year-old history and politics student with Open University. These podcasts have been a great aid to understanding politics, both current and past. It's a bonus that Matt presents his programme with charm, charisma and modesty. This is exactly the sort of uh, message that I would have posted myself. And uh, Matt says, It's unbiased, in-depth and most importantly fun. The Daily Big Thing of your rare insight to the world of politics. Uh, well, today we're going to get a rare insight into the world of property. Coming up today, uh, we're asking, how do you build a house? Every Prime Minister says they want to build more homes, and then it doesn't always happen. Uh, so we've asked a developer, a planner, and Martin Roberts, some actual homes under the hammer. How do you build a house? Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. But before that, this. The Colonists. On Times Radio. Do you keep chickens, Patrick? Uh, that's a very odd way. No, no. What does this well, mean? because we was discovered it? yesterday that both Indian and Alice Thompson keep chickens. Right. And they're currently grappling with some new rules. They've got to keep them locked in because of bird flu. And I just wondered if it was a thing at all times.
2: I've got some in the freezer.
1: Well, um, I think you'll, you'll be all right. I think you'll fall foul not of laying the bird very flu. Ex- yes. You won't
2: fall foul of the bird flu rules. There's been a big bird flu. I was in France um, on, on, on a hol- holiday in August and. Um, Went to buy some foie gras, which I know people will be very disapproving of. And with my limited French, I went out they've had bird flu. He said, Grip de canade. Is that what it's called? Yeah, either that or he's complaining that my handshake was pretty firm. <laughs> but Grip de canade. Um, yeah, bird flu's raging across France. Yeah. I'm come here now. Because it yeah. flies. Yeah. <laughs> Famously.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, right, let's, t- let's uh, turn our attention to, to more pressing matters. Liz Truss, undoing, in ten year, undoing 10 years of Tory work in just 10 days. I think tomorrow is the ten day after Grant Shapps said she got ten
2: days to turn things around. That's up tomorrow. Yeah, do you she's, think she's done enough to turn it round, Patrick? <laughs> By the sounds of what was coming out of the um, nineteen twenty two committee last night, I wasn't there, but you, you see on Twitter there were sports of the journalists. I mean, for those who don't know, it's in a it's in a committee room, and the press all have like glasses held to the wall trying to hear what's going on, and to try and fox them, the fiends. The press all hammer up, uh, so the MPs hammer on their desks. Someone said someone was hammering on the wall, but it may have sounded like they are trying to get yeah, out. Yeah, so, so it's supposed <laughs> but, to be—it's
1: supposed to be that lots of banging. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's but, a sign of uh, support. Yes, but yeah, when when the the lone supporters
2: banging on the door to try and create the impression, <laughs> but then all, as they came out and the responses from MPs yeah. to what they'd just been said, one said, "Well, it happened." Yeah, others were all grim faced. I mean, she is struggling, and she's she's still in her honeymoon period. Yeah, what a honeymoon! <laughs> Um, You know, a month in the job, just over five weeks, and two weeks of that were taken out by the Queen's death. And the Tories are now indulging in their sport of hating each other more than they do um, the idea of not being in government. And the point that uh,
1: Robert Halfon, the Conservative MP and Chairman of the Education Select Committee, seems to have made at the 1922 Committee, was he directly accused of trashing ten years of, of Conservative government. And that's, that's fundamentally the problem. Somebody described to me last week as being like a Gerald Ratner moment. It, if you stand up and say, everything we've been doing is rubbish, don't yes. be surprised if everyone thinks that you're
2: rubbish. And when you've been in the cabinet yourself. Yeah. I mean, literally, you've more than anyone. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's... I mean, in many ways, the mini-budget that sort of led to all this was perfectly conservative, just not for the moment. I think when you're dealing with the cost of living crisis and energy prices and inflation, that's not the time to suddenly say, let's make it easier for the, the ultra-wealthy. Yeah. Even if, philosophically, at another point, it would be perfectly fine. Which is the point that actually Joe Adlines, one of the trussonomics
1: economists, was on Times Radio this morning saying, it, you know, the ideas in themselves weren't necessarily bad, but don't do them now.
2: It's bad politics. And so yeah. Kwasi has well, he's now gone past Ian MacLeod's record of 30 days as Chancellor. I think, uh, how many days is he done now? About five weeks. So, so Nadim Zahari on 63 days is the next in his... And then Sajid Javid, six months. So we've had three pretty short-lived yeah, chancellors yeah. in the last few years. James, what do you make of this? It's extraordinary, isn't it? I sort of keep trying to work out what what
3: this... Someone must be thinking something, you kind of think. There must be some sort of strategy behind this mess that someone's trying to direct, you know, someone's trying to direct. But it just seems seems like a total mess. You know, she should be, as everyone says, you know, at least reassuring the markets, which, you know, she kind of signally failed to do by saying that, OK, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have tax cuts and we're also going to have, you know, no spending cuts, apparently. Although then, you know, afterwards she said that perhaps we're going to... You know, use money more effectively, which um, I think, as you were pointing out yesterday, in PMQs is often a kind of euphemism for, we might have to cut your budget a bit. It's just a total, it's just a total mess that sort of just keeps on rolling. And why is no one getting a handle on it? Why is no one sort of really makes you think that no one has a clue what they're doing? And you sort of always want to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume, well, you can't have got this far being totally useless, but...
2: It does look got, a bit that way. It's got so bad that if this was Boris Johnson and these things were happening, uh, he would have gone to Ukraine four times now, <laughs> uh, to try, which was his stock thing when things were, d- were difficult. Um, which
1: she, even she has tried that. She has had quite a lot of phone calls with uh, uh, Zelensky. Yeah. but none of they don't even they don't even sort of touch the sides in terms of the sort of the barrage of yeah. When Zelensky phone calls aren't doing it, you know it's <laughs> yeah, you know, you know it's bad. Um, do you think? Uh, I mean, does she even clear the bar of mediocrity that you've written about in your column today, James, in <laughs> praise of? Uh, mediocrity is among the most promising people in the world no well i mean she's kind of obviously
3: massively massively disproving that 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 thesis my my, my thesis was that you know society needs you know places to um to incubate mediocrity so they can hone their craft and uh you know burst out with like you know when when you've had a lot of time to practice being middle of the road and then you suddenly come out hopefully having practiced a lot with a work of genius but you shouldn't be practicing mediocrity in uh, in uh, in the position of prime minister, you sh- you should have worked out what you're doing by the time you get there. I think, um, yeah, no, I, I, I she's kind of. Bu- it seems like she's below mediocrity. like, <laughs>
1: it, you know, mediocrity
3: at least has reaching, an air of sort of stability. Reaching, and... She's starting to
1: reach the uh,
2: the the heights of mediocrity. She dreams, yeah. she dreams I mean, of being mediocrity. Tro- I mean, I, I hate being unnecessarily rude, but she was in the cabinet for eight years without being all that impressive. Yeah. She was kept She was kept off the the bottom rank by being in the same cabinet as Gavin Williamson and Chris Grayling. Um, but she wasn't ever regarded as sort of one of the bright things of, of the cabinet. So, you know, what do we expect? She sort of was a great
1: survivor by, by not being eye-catchingly bad. Yeah. You know, you're sort of you're Gavin Williamsons or whatever, you know, who, who who become a sort of lightning rod, they become a punchline, which with the exception of the that is a disgrace speech, she managed to avoid that by just sort of being i suppose being mediocre
3: yeah that that, that that is not being conspicuously terrible is quite a political skill isn't it because plenty of people you know in the course of that boris johnson government just became just became laughing stocks matt hancock gavin williamson i mean she
1: evidently was saving it all up for one big you know blowout of becoming a laughing stock all at once it's the key thing is if i ever went on bake-off it's the people who like week one they start trying to build, like, the Taj Mahal out of meringues. <laughs> and it falls down. Like, you only have to not be the worst person. So just, like, particularly in the early weeks of Bake Off, just keep, you know, this is basically Liz Chuss's approach to politics. Is just keep churning out perfectly okay... Photo shoots. Do lots scones. of photo shoots. Scones. <laughs> yeah, scones. You know, flapjacks, fine. And all the other people will drop away. And maybe that's what happened, that, you know, Gavin Williamson tried to build a Taj Mahal out of meringues. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that cabinet was hardly like a vintage bake-off season, was it? It was hardly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but now and she's ended up as sort of star baker, and she's won. Uh, and it turns out she's she's still not really capable of doing much more than some flapjacks. Where is Paul Hollywood? Paul Hollywood's got to get her out the tent,
2: somehow. But your your column today is, is about that premise, that some people burn very brightly, very quickly, and then they're never heard from again. Except in some cases, they, they make their name. You know, Ian McEwan never has to write another decent book, because... He, his books will sell, he's got the name, Salman Rushdie or wh- whoever. Whereas you've got the ones like Hilary Mantel who churned out a lot of fairly mediocre stuff and then suddenly late in life had learned her craft.
3: Yes. Yeah, I mean, this this is my thesis that um, it's very important for society to be able to support people who are kind of, you know, not doing magnificent things, but, you know, rolling along, doing all right. And, you know, once upon a time, publishers were better at supporting mid-list authors. Bands were able to survive without huge hits. But the way the industry has changed, the way that Spotify means that you have to have millions and millions of streams before you can become, you know, before you can even begin to make an income. Yeah. Publishers are chasing flashy debuts or publishing the zillion, the inmacure novel. And there's that kind of middle space to experiment and... Has, yeah, because financially, it's, it's very hard to go and become an author. It's basically, it's virtually impossible unless you really, unless your first novel is a smash hit, basically, nowadays, yes. I think. Um, so it doesn't, I don't think it quite applies to, quite applies to politics. Because if you're looking for somewhere in politics, you know that sustains plenty of mediocrities. You could, House of Lords. Yeah. Um,
1: what, a, what a beautiful segue. Just I, just I, thought me, I, I saw it coming and I thought, will, so, I, will, I, will I try and do a radio segue? It feels like your job. But. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> you can carry on. Uh, so, yeah, this independent body that vets appointments to the House of Lords as accused party le- or go to accused party leaders, try to push through unsuitable candidates. The House of Lords Appointments Commission has written to tell Liz Truss and Keir Starmer that recent nominees for peerages have put the committee in an increasingly uncomfortable position. Yeah. You've you spent probably longer looking at the House of Lords than most, Patrick. Well, Not, yes. not eyeing
4: up
2: for your own ermine. Uh, no, 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 I know my level of medi- mediocrity. Um, <laughs> I think what, what what we've had is people who not only aren't particularly good and they've got their peerage because they've been a donor or they've been a, a close friend, but also who once they're there, they're not, they're not using that position to be a legislator. And it seems like we have two types of lords the lord with the ermine that likes a title on the, the reservations at Shepherds or whatever. And um, like John Prescott said, oh, you know, I don't want to be a law, but I want to, for the, for the missus, I want her to have a title. And so you've got Lord Crudders, who has um, yeah. spoken twice in Parliament since becoming a, a, a peer. Uh, once for his maiden speech, once for a question on, on cycle lanes. Um, Ian Botham has spoken twice um, since becoming a peer. Uh, Lebedev has spoken only once. And these are people who became peers in 2020, 2021. So what are they there for if they're not actually taking part? So I would be all in favour of the uh, sort of middle-ranking ministers who may, may not have shone in Parliament, but are perfectly assiduous scrutinators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone like Patrick Cormack or Michael Forsyth, who was you know a very really junior member of the Cabinet, but he's a really assiduous debater, scrutineer, doing what the Upper House would be for. And actually, that's why I defend many of the hereditary peers, because you have to be elected to get yeah. in. Uh, and therefore you are chosen because you're going to do a job. You're not just chosen well, those, Although, strictly speaking, once in, there's only one way you can be out. Well, true, but a lot of them now do resign when they feel yeah, their, their time has come to end. But apart from some of the ones who came in in 1999 who were slightly dufferish, Lord Palmer, he once asked a question about biscuits going um, stale, which I suppose at least was what he knew about. <laughs> um, but a lot of the ones who've come in in the last ten years, yeah. they've had to appeal, and so they talk about their expertise, and then they show up and they speak, yeah, and that's yeah. great. I, I, the House of Lords should be there for experts. Not for patrons Would you ever take a seat, James?
3: Yeah, if I can I want to be one of the ones who speaks two times a year uh, possibly ask a question about biscuits are there any more are there any, is someone, can someone pass, pass me a plate of biscuits uh, and then and then and then um, and then just disappear and go around telling of i the lord that seems like the main advantage Patrick, it? What,
1: would your ne- what would your title be? Well, I want a bishopric Bishop? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I will be a lord spirit <laughs> Lord, very good Very good <laughs> Patrick Kidd and James Marrick, then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box, And right now, you can get your first month for free. Up next, how do you build a house? You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So Liz Truss's big list of reforms, either nicknamed Operation Rolling Thunder or Operation something else, uh, which we won't repeat, is meant to include a big push to reform planning and help build more homes. It's a massive political issue, housing. A recent YouGov poll asked, who would you trust to help get people onto the housing ladder? Just 10% said a Conservative government led by Liz Truss, while 37% said a Labour government by, led by Keir Starmer, although 27% said neither. And that's probably an indication of the public uh, acceptance of the fact that nothing ever really changes. Everyone, almost, well, almost everyone, seems to agree we're not building enough. But today we want to look at how you build a house, from planning through to getting what, uh, getting what politicians call shovels in the ground. So who better to start with than the property investor and TV presenter, Martin Roberts, who's the presenter of the hit show, Homes Under
5: the Hammer. We haven't had enough houses for years. This has been an ongoing problem. It's not something that's new. But obviously, as the population expands, as people you know, want to fulfil that desire, which we do have in this country of owning our own place... Uh, You know, the situation just compounds itself. And I think what's happened uh, is that the amount of houses that have needed to be built uh, has just continually not been met. And therefore, the problem just gets worse and worse. From your perspective,
1: why is it that we don't uh, build enough um, houses? Is it just made too difficult? Is it... Some people say it's nimbyism. Every, every party leader ever says we're going to build more houses and it doesn't happen. What is it from being on the sort of front line of this? From your perspective, why is it that we don't build enough?
5: Well, I don't know, <laughs> is, this, is the simple answer. I'm sorry to be so blunt. But, you know, it, it, for me, the focus is on, on people thinking that you need to build houses on greenfields. I'm absolutely against developing greenfield sites, I really am. However, there are a million brownfield sites, places, old car parks, old industrial places and whatever, that could easily be used to build all the housing that this country needs. Uh, the, The builders know there's profit in it. I mean, it's been very tough recently because... You know, property prices of materials have gone absolutely through the roof. We're obviously seeing, you know, problems of of affordability now with with mortgages going up and the cost of living crisis. So, you know, it it is an interesting time in the property market. And yet people still want to, to buy those properties. So, you know, with some of the schemes that the government introduced to help to buy, and things like that you know there is still a way to do this so let's focus on those bits of land that we could build on and i'm not particularly into you know super relaxation of planning rules but making it easier for certain kinds of land to have really easy planning permission on it would would actually be a big tick in the box as far as i'm concerned
1: and i know you've been a property investor you've been doing homes on the hammer for nearly 20 years now you've we've been through a lot of ups and downs in the property market. How bad is the current situation? Uh, and when, you know, if interest rates start start going up and so on, I suppose there's a there's a risk that fewer people will be able to afford uh, to buy homes. So actually the, the developers will start building even fewer homes.
5: So, I mean, what you've got to remember is that the housing market, since records began, has always been cyclical. So there's times when it's, it's in boom and there's time when it goes into correction. You know, there aren't, you know, there aren't specific indications that, you know, this is going to be anything like what we've seen the last time that was a major correction, which was 2007, 2008. But everybody naturally, it's about the stop when the stock market goes up enough. Everyone going, oh, well, it's going to drop. It's going to drop. And if you look back over time, though, you know, the prices have moved in the right direction. Is there going to be extra pressures on people? Yes, absolutely. Am I worried that it's a bit of a perfect storm? Absolutely. Interest rate rises. I'm really shocked about how quickly they're going up. I never thought that would happen. I thought they would know that although they did stress test people more uh, following 2000 and 2007 and 8, uh, you know, for affordability, you know, I, I, I know that people get used to low interest rates and with the cost of living crisis, fuel prices going up, food prices going up. You know, all those extra sort of bits of stress testing, unfortunately, have been been taken away. But some of those extra family living costs. So I am really worried that it's a bit of a perfect storm. However, it is still historically low interest rates. I mean, we're all you know, quite understandably shocked at the rate it's going up, and so am I. But, you know, I'll just take you back to, you know, 1980, whenever it was when I bought my first house, my interest rate on my mortgage was 15%. So thank God it's got a long way to go to get to that level. But I understand why people are concerned. And I understand that, you know, unless the government does more than it's doing to try and stop whatever's going on, you know, it, it is going to drive people to, to a point of real difficulty. And obviously,
1: I'm right in thinking quite a lot of the houses which end up on homes under the hammer, literally going under the hammer, are uh, ones that have been repossessed. Is that right? Not or, not always, but sometimes that's the case, isn't it?
5: So Do you, y- you know, so you might start seeing more of that. Yeah, well, after 2007, 2008, uh, you know, we did see an influx of people who couldn't afford to, 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 to live in their homes. And unfortunately, that often resulted in, in, in houses getting repossessed. Now, that is a long way down the line in people's. Uh, it should be taken out of their worry, uh, their worry equation because there is so much you should be doing before you get to that stage. And the main thing is if anybody who's struggling is talk to people, talk to the people who you owe money to, talk to people who might be able to help you. I don't think all is lost. Because it isn't. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to see a return to those kind of days. Everyone fears it. I get you know, There's so much negativity in the world at the moment. You know, it's just like another thing to add to the cauldron of rubbish that's going on. But I, do, I think people need to try and just not panic and get things in perspective. You are a long way away from having your home repossessed and finding yourself, you know, having to, to make some alternative arrangements. And there's lots of things that you can do if you're starting out, even in the current climate to actually turn it in your favor. Now, obviously, as you say, shock horror, I have been doing homes in the hammer for 20 years. <laughs> um, so in that time, we've seen ups and downs. Now, the property market is, you know, it, the, the auction market is actually a barometer to what's going on. And, you know, we're still seeing a lot of interest in, in the housing market, the housing properties that are sold through through auctions. And, and they are a way that people, you know, even when they're starting out, can get on the ladder because you can often buy property at a bit of a discounted price. You can then add value value to. Um, so you might not be able to get your dream home, but what you can buy is a home that you can add value to and start building that kind of like equity, that that pot of money. And also maybe don't buy in the area uh, that, that you initially and ideally want to live in. Buy slightly further afield where it might be cheaper. And then there's something which a lot of people don't know about, which is something called help to build. Now, I, I personally think that the, the, the way through this mess might be a real increase in people doing what's called self-build. And I'm not talking about getting your hammer and your nails and getting planks of wood and building something that looks like, you know, the house that the little piggies built. But I'm talking about either engaging with the builder or, or, yes, getting partially involved. And there is a lot of support for people who are going to take that initiative. Councils have to provide land for you to build on if you write to them, uh, and there's enough people who do that. Um, There's mortgage products which are now available for self-builders. And actually, the government is going to introduce a scheme called Help to Build, which is very similar to Help to Buy. And by building your own, by taking out the developer and actually doing it yourself, engaging with tradespeople, engaging with builders, you can actually often save up to 30 percent. So a third of the price of that property. So maybe that is another way out of uh, a slight curveball in getting yourself out of the situation that it is at the moment.
1: That's Martin Roberts, the presenter of uh, Homes Under the Hammer, one of my favourite shows. I can't watch anymore because, well, while I'm doing this. So anyway, it was good to speak to uh, Martin. So, in this half hour, we want to try and pick through some of the things which stop us building the homes that everyone thinks we need, and nobody knows more about this subject than Carol Lewis, deputy Porter editor of the Times. Carol, how are you? Thanks I'm for coming very well.
6: in. Good morning.
1: Uh, before, before we uh, we dive in, uh, just reflecting on what Martin was saying there, he was talking about how uh, things aren't as bad as they have been in the past because interest rates are only at 5 6% and you your your eyebrows <laughs> shot up.
6: I know, this is something that people have been trotting out all week. Oh, it was worse in my day in the 1980s when interest rates were 14%, whatever. Um, and it's an, a very good analysis. Uh, uh, analysis by a guy called Neil Hudson and yesterday, and he said 6.4% today is the same as 13.7% in 1989. And that's because our salaries have not kept pace with house prices. So you would have seen this morning, the Bank of England has warned that more families are going to be in financial distress because a significant portion of their salaries are going to be taken up with mortgages and bills. That's the key. It's not the number that the insurance interest rate is. It's how much that stretches us. And it's stretching us now as if it was 14% in 1989.
1: Which is a depressing figure, but it's a good, it's mm. an interesting, it's a good stat uh, to have at our fingertips. And let's talk then about the housing issue. Uh, Liz Truss and her supporters say one of the things they want to do, get Britain moving, yeah. uh, is uh, supply-side reforms. You tear up the planning system mm. of sorts. And we could get more homes built. The target in the search Manifesto was to aim for 300,000 homes a year by the mid-2020s. I mean, we're not even close to that, are we? No,
6: we're about 50,000 short a year. What's interesting, I think, is actually um, outline planning permission is given for that number of homes. It's just like 5% never get built. And... Looking into that, that is because it then becomes mired in the planning process. So you buy a piece of land as a developer, you'll tend to buy a piece of land with outline planning consent for so many homes. Those all add up to 300,000. But what happens is, and, and Dorian will be able to talk about this later, yeah. is when you get on site, you want to build fewer homes. You want to build them differently. And then it all gets mired in, in this planning system and our, our planning uh, system. It's not just the policy side; it's also the people side. We don't invest in planning. We've got planning officers who are poorly paid. Most of them been working at home for the last two years. They get you know shouted at. <laughs> you know the one developer said to me he'd happily pay more if it was invested in the planning system and he could just deal with a better equipped planning system.
1: Well, in fact, as part of this, let's speak to a planner. Uh, Martin Gain is a chartered town planner and wrote a book called How to Get Planning Permission. Morning, Martin. Good morning. Uh, Does what Carol was just saying chime with your experience and understanding of what's going on in the planning system right now?
7: Yes. I mean, there's definitely a crisis in the planning system. Uh, Resources are down by about 40 percent over the last 10 years. And um, uh, local authority planners are really struggling to perform at all. To get planning applications through, to um, uh, to get decisions out, so there's definitely an issue in terms of the just on the ground how the planning system is functioning. But I think the bigger problem is more strategic. Um, I you know I accept that the outline planning permissions are being delivered for a large number of homes, but I think some of those permissions are duplicates or are not built out for other reasons. I'm not sure it's entirely the fault of a planning system failing to then. Follow up with a full planning permission. So the difficulty really is. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say. So
1: uh, let, let's try and sort of t- talk through this for people who, d- who don't know. I've I own a piece of land which I think I could build. What let's say, two hundred houses on. Is that a reasonable number of yeah. houses on That's my a piece of land? Yeah. That's quite a <laughs> lot. But yeah, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help the government. <laughs> so uh, Martin, talk me through how I get through the planning system to get those two hundred homes on there, and what might be some of the the, the, the traps that it falls into which means that we well, don't end up with 200 homes on that piece of land
7: well the way the planning system was designed was that planners would plan their area work out what homes were needed and where they should go and then uh, land was allocated so if you as a developer were buying land for 200 homes ideally it would have been allocated for that purpose and effectively you'd have planning permission already then You'd still have to work out the details and, and so on, but you'd be uh, way ahead. The difficulty now is that the plans aren't in place. They're all out of date. Um, uh, there's great opposition to building in the countryside or in the green belt. So developers are applying for permission kind of speculatively. So in your case, you may have found a lovely big greenfield site on the edge of a town or a city. And you thought, well, this is perfect. It's, it's right near other houses. It's just on the edge of the settlement What could possibly go wrong? But if it hasn't been allocated, you already have difficulties. Um, If the local authority has a housing shortage, there is a presumption that you should get planning permission. This is the five-year housing supply you sometimes hear about, but it becomes really contentious. The local authority tends to refuse it on the basis that it's not in their plan. Then you go to appeal where the government appeal inspectors are more favorable because they're looking at a strategic level at the housing targets. So it can become then a really very difficult fight and it stokes tensions with the local community. It makes it all way more complicated than it needs to be. And it means that homes are delivered in places where we don't really necessarily want them. If, they were, if we were planning our towns properly, allocating land properly, we wouldn't be receiving speculative applications from developers that might just be in the wrong part of town or in the wrong town or for the wrong type of house and so on.
1: It's part of the problem. Uh, Martin, th- just the way the planning system works, and because it's held by local councils, and it's never in the interests of the elected leaders of a local council to upset people who already live there with the promise of homes for people who don't.
7: Yes, so there's a clear difficulty there because the benefits um, are to the broader public interest, yeah. but if, but the local community living near any particular site don't benefit at all. And nimbyism, as we call it, isn't entirely irrational. If you have a lovely house on the edge of a town looking over green fields, and it's proposed to build a couple of hundred houses on the other side of your road, you're naturally going to be opposed. There's no way around that. It's a bit unfair to slate that as kind of anti-development. But the system needs to have a mechanism for taking on board the concerns of people and nevertheless delivering the right development in the right places. And the secret is to make it plan-led again, to have up-to-date plans where professional planners and experts have worked out what homes are needed where, allocated that land, involved the public in some kind of consultation, you know, involved, used some um, incentives or some form of funding for the local community if that would help, and then developers come along and develop in a more kind of less confrontational and more predictable way.
1: Martin, some top advice there. Martin Gain, who who literally wrote the book How to Get Planning Permission, uh, with some top advice there. Um, uh, Carol, it's interesting the point that uh, Martin was making, that actually if you have high-quality plans developed by the developers, working closely with a well-staffed bunch of planners who can who could say, well, look, we know, we've tried this before and people didn't like so many bungalows, or you know, it actually, if you put some money in this pot for, and, you know, and we could build a park, and actually the thing the town really wants, a new school, and if you help to fund that's that... That's the thing.
6: Infrastructure is the big thing. Whenever you talk about housing development, the local residents always talk about traffic. What's going to happen to the traffic? Yeah. And that that's just seems so mundane, but it's one of the key things, is to get that infrastructure sorted. And I,
1: and I suppose it's so easy, if you want to mount a campaign against something... We don't want lorries thundering through here. It's such an easy thing.
6: Easy. And as you say, the councillors then back
1: off. Yeah. And they just say, well, actually, it's not worth worth the hassle. Yes. Somebody will build these homes somewhere else. Yes. And then they don't. Well, let's speak to somebody who actually has managed to build some homes. Uh, Dorian Beresford uh, is the Chief Development Officer for the Builder EcoBoss, who helped develop uh, West Carclay's Garden Village in Cornwall. Dorian, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So you've cracked it. You, you know how to build houses. Uh, how easy was it?
4: Cracked it, maybe not. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, look, I'm, we do large-scale developments, but having been in the industry quite a long time, it's equally applicable. I think one of the really interesting points that we've just been speaking about or was raised then was the, the route to planning is creating good quality plans. But that often happens without speaking to house builders. So you then end up with a lot of situations where sites store are due to viability, due to challenges around deliverability, the, the commercial outcomes that are required. And I think part of our biggest challenge is, you know, we, we this term affordable is generally, you know, to a section 106 requirement or something that's delivered by local authorities and housing associations. But to deliver homes more affordable to people takes a real public-private partnership. So at West Carclays, we've Uh, Very lucky to have a strategic partnership board with Cornwall Council, Homes England, Department of Education, we have Department of Energy at points. Um, And so it's a really kind of holistic way to be able to look at how you can move some of the challenges to one side as you go through the process, and particularly with large-scale developments over time, there needs to be flexibility and change. Section 104s that were signed years ago aren't really appropriate to provide facilities and amenities for communities Eight and nine years down the down the line, when different needs are there, so it's Doria, a building just ex- houses. Just explain, with
1: plans. just to explain. There's lots of jargon here. What is a section 104, and what's a section 106? So,
4: well, a section 106 is uh, it's a legal document that ensures that as a developer, you deliver something or something. So it could be it would be your percentage of affordable housing on site. It could be the provision for a school or you know, a place, a space for a school, a school. so it's community assets generally. Yeah. Some kind of benefit. So it goes above and
1: beyond the sort of just throwing up a load of houses, then selling them and clearing off. That there's
4: sort of your, it's, it's the infrastructure stuff that we were, we were talking. It's a about. requirement, yeah. Generally focusing on on affordable homes. So the section one of six homes are the shared ownership and affordable rent, etc. But um, uh, and again, I think you know those. The, 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 there's been lots and lots of changes around yeah. how those things are calculated and what there is that you do and viability. But I think the, the key issue is, you know, you can build really beautiful homes. We we create sustainable communities. So all our homes are EPCA rated. Um, that means that, it's, you know, in this day and age and particularly got really low running costs.
6: And do, during on, the, oh, yeah, on that point, because yeah. you're, you're, you're trying to do something really great down there with your EPCA and net zero, but you've had problems, haven't you? I remember you telling me, that and if, for instance, on the and the pavements which are, are brick, you've had to put ash underneath because of the regulations, which is double the cost. You've got solar power and wind power, which you wanted to plug into the local community. Again, that wasn't straightforward, was it? There, there are ways no, where there, things could be made easier.
4: There are huge challenges for us to get to net zero, and and you know, housing and new homes will be a big part of that. But yeah, we just. You don't want to have lots of hard areas. You want to have obviously people be able to walk around safely, but you do want softer areas because it's better for rainfall to run off. It encourages bees and butterflies and um, you know all the kind of insects that are dying. You know, having seven and a half megawatts of yeah. solar on site, but really frustratingly, it's 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 almost impossible to take that from. People can see over the road where their cheap electricity would come from, but putting it into the project is incredibly difficult. So. While there's lots of reforms around building homes, there's very really little conversation around building the homes we have to build. You know, these sustainable homes with lower running costs that mm. you know, also help us you know, save five and a half tons of carbon on average. The average home produces six, um, have running costs as in a combined energy cost of five to six hundred pounds a year as opposed to over two thousand. Um, you know, it's it's there's there's not enough conversation around how we build those types of homes. And the and other the thing that you've
6: mentioned, Dorian, before is about there's a lot of innovation in building in this country and we're just not mm-hmm. getting it into the mainstream. We're not getting it into our that, housing. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. I not, and that, what we've done is tried to find is we we have a way of building homes that are, you know, that they've got mechanical heat ventilation recovery for clean air, PV on the roofs, air source, heat pumps and are able to sell them at prices similar to other developers in the area that don't have that kind of technology. And it's how you then scale that up to a point where the things like the air source heat pumps or PV inverters, all the things that go into the home become cheaper to put in because it's adopted on a wider scale. Dorian, and we're that's we're the have to
1: transition. we have to leave it yeah. there for a moment. Uh, Dorian no Burris, really good to speak to Chief Development Officer of the EcoBoss. Uh, Eco so every government says they want more houses. Uh, and yet, we never quite seem to meet the targets. In part, it's because Conservative MPs end up opposing any change to the planning system, and one of them is the former Environment Secretary uh, Therese Villiers, who joins me uh, now. Good morning. Good morning. It's all your fault, isn't it? We don't build enough houses.
8: Uh, not at all. I mean, for one thing, I would point out that we are building a lot of houses. I don't know whether I can't recall the latest figure, but it's you know it's around the two hundred fifty thousand mark. Um, but the question is. We need to ensure that uh, we put local communities at the heart of decision making on what gets built in their neighborhoods. And that was one of the reasons why I opposed recent proposals uh, for changes to the planning system. But there is plenty that we could do to improve it, not least to tackle the problem at the moment. Developers are very often granted permission to build hundreds of homes and then they sit on them. Uh, don't build them out because they want to keep prices as high as possible. So I think we need to look at some of the competition between developers and their approach in terms of actually building out the schemes that they're given. That is a crucial factor. It's not just um, the way decisions are made on what planning permissions are granted.
1: Isn't it also in part because uh, older older people who own their own homes uh, and tend to vote Tory, uh, don't like new houses being built near them. It's a NIMBY problem, isn't
8: it? It's not. I, I would not describe it like that. There is there even from your colleagues to whom you've been speaking. There's there's real concern about loss of green fields, loss of the natural environment, and speaking as a, a representative of the suburbs, um, there is concern about urbanisation of the suburbs. One of the The older proposals for planning changes would have hiked up housing targets in in the London suburbs so much that you'd have to have turned us into something like East Berlin covered in tower blocks. I mean, thankfully, that has bitten the dust. But there are ways in which we can get more homes built, which don't destroy our local environment. And that's what we need to seek in in these forthcoming planning reforms.
1: If Boris Johnson uh, wasn't able to force through uh, planning reforms with his 80 seat majority and riding high, uh, as he was at various points in the polls there's absolutely no way that liz truss is going to manage to to pull off uh, a radical overhaul of planning is there
8: the approach is taken is to concentrate ideas on planning changes to investment zones and the the principle behind those is that they're brought forward by local councils so they're targeting areas where they have space for more homes where they want more homes and i think that's a key difference between the proposals that came forward under boris johnson's premiership which were, were going to be a universal zonal planning system depriving local communities of their decision making powers uh, as opposed to these concentrated areas where you can you can deliver an uplift in new homes Primarily, in in many cases, on brownfield sites, so less environmentally sensitive. So I think that that's a reasonable start, though, obviously, we don't know the precise content of the reforms. And I'm sure they'll get very careful scrutiny by Conservative MPs.
1: How confident are you that we'll ever see any of these reforms, that Liz Truss will even still be in uh, Downing Street in the next few weeks and months to even uh, bring them forward? Were you at the 1922, this meeting of 1922... Uh, committee of MPs yesterday, which was described as funereal by one of your colleagues?
8: I was there, and I, I certainly wouldn't describe it in that way. I, I know there is a, a planning reform which is coming up, which I've been discussing, both with the Housing Minister and the Secretary of State, and that is Liz Trust's commitment to scrap centrally set housing targets. Now, these have been a source of huge concern to, to many MPs over these past few years because they are steadily driving over development. So local councils increasingly feel that they have to accept development, which is too much, that strains infrastructure, which is unpopular locally, because they have to meet their housing targets. Well, has said very clearly, repeatedly, during her leadership election, that uh, those targets will go. And so I'm expecting, I very much hope, we will see that implemented shortly.
1: Um, you say the targets will go. Do you think Liz Truss will go?
8: Uh, no, I think we've, we've got to give her a chance. Any prime minister would be facing, you know, very serious problems because the global economy is in turmoil as a result of the aftermath of COVID. Yeah, but this this prime minister is facing
1: problems shot. that she's created herself on top of all of those problems.
8: It, we we had to do something differently. It, it is clear that, Did that you, we have to you get didn't have to do this going. And so, I think we need to give this plan a chance to succeed. We've already seen the IMF upgrade its forecast for growth in the United Kingdom as a result of the Chancellor's statement. And the reality is there is turmoil in the markets in many parts of the world. We saw intervention by the Bank of Japan in relation to the, their currency. So there, there is there are no easy options at the moment, and I think we've got a, a credible growth plan. We need to to get on with delivering it.
1: That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.